This is uh, the Emotional Health Stream, and this is our third seminar in the stream. And uh, today's about the teenage brain. If you are interested in issues of emotional mental health, um, I really want to encourage you uh, to listen back to the talks in the stream, uh, but also to um, find out more resources at http.org, some of the talks, but also at minorsoulfoundation.org, where we do a lot of work about Christianity and uh, mental health. It's great to have so many uh, supporters in the room. There's some great new initiatives going on around mental and emotional health in our church, which is super exciting. Uh, there's a new uh, jewelry brand here today. I know recognize these guys are uh, uh, championing uh, mental health. So it's great to have you here. If you want to find out more about Recognize, chat to uh, Annika here down at the front afterwards. Uh, it's great to have so many people who are passionate about seeing transformation and change amongst the young people uh, in the UK, but particularly in our churches and in our schools. And I'm delighted uh, today to uh, be part of this amazing seminar. I'm just going to let you get comfortable. Our hosts uh, for today are Nikki and Silla Lee, and they head up everything relationship-wise in HD, but also the marriage courses around the world. So I'm going to hand over you to both. Let's give them a big round of applause. Thank you, Will, very much indeed. Well, we've got the easiest job this afternoon. In a moment, we're going to introduce the panel. And I can't think of a more fascinating and important topic to be looking at uh, than looking at the teenage brain. And we want to say a very warm welcome, whether you're here as a teenager or whether you're here as a parent or someone else who has an interest in caring for uh, teenagers Welcome today. And we recognize this is a complicated area, which is why it's so amazing we've got some experts in this field who'll be looking at this question today. And it's complicated because it's psychological, neurological, it's to do with changes from childhood to adulthood and so on. And we want to say um, that the family, of course, plays a big part in this. This is not just about teenagers trying to cope on their own. It's not just about parents trying to cope on their own. But us doing this together, helping each other, understanding more together, supporting each other. I just want to say that Nikki and I have experienced uh, living with four teenagers. Um, it is quite a while ago now, so a lot of it has been completely blocked out of my memory. Um, but there's a lot of it that remains, which was that it was huge, huge fun. But I want to be honest with you, it was also hugely challenging. And I particularly found parenting teenagers totally out of my comfort zone. I didn't know how to do it. And we got it. I got it. Nikki is much more naturally a parent of teenagers and does it in, I think, a really great way. Um, but I got it horribly wrong and I had a lot to learn. And actually, um, I would say coming out of having parented four teenagers who all survived us and having us as parents, which is fairly amazing, um, that the more you can... Um, talk together, listen to one another, and work through where you're all aiming to go together, the better. And we, we've written about some of that and some of our experience, some of our journey in the parenting book and in the Parenting Teenagers course. But what is really exciting, since we were parenting teenagers, there's just so much more understanding about how we function. And that's why I'm so excited to um, hear the people that we are going to hear from today because they know way, way more now because of the research on the brain um, than we ever did. But God knows most of all. So we wanted to start by praying. Oh no, are we going to introduce first? Okay. Okay. Lord, we want to thank you that you created family and you created us wonderfully. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And thank you that you are so passionate that we would understand how best to care and love one another. And that's what we want to learn more about today. And I thank you for these 
um, wonderful people who are passionate about uh, adolescents and young people. And I pray that you would um, make this time together a time of learning for every single one of us. So come by your Holy Spirit, we pray, and teach us this afternoon. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if we could ask Will to come back up and Kate Middleton and Steve Marshall-Taylor. And uh, let's give them a huge welcome. I, I'll just do a very brief introduction because I think they'll be saying more about themselves. Kate uh, Middleton is a psychologist uh, who specializes in adolescent emotional health. Uh, Steve Marshall-Taylor is deputy head of Brighton College and part of his responsibility there is for the pastoral work in the church and for safeguarding. And will in the school, did I say the church? I meant to say in the school, I'm so sorry, Steve. I'm sure you do a lot in the church as well. Absolutely, no doubt. And then uh, Will, whom we work with closely at uh, HTB, who specializes in mental and emotional uh, health and how that works together with faith. So we are so excited by what you're going to be talking about. Over to you. I just want to say a super warm welcome to all the teenagers in the room today. Uh, this, yeah, this, this is not going to be a seminar where we're talking over you to your parents. This is a seminar where we're going to be talking to you because awareness of your own brain is really foundational. Other people can know or think they know what's going on inside your head, but there's no one more important to know about what's going on in the head than you. And so we want to really talk directly to you today. We want to give you some practical tips and insights about how you can support your own brain function. And we want to commend you and encourage you for being in the room because actually self-awareness is really key, isn't it, in uh, emotional mental health and in your functioning both in the home and in the school. Kate, just um, if we like pop the boot or the lid, the bonnet on the brain for us for a minute, what, what's going on in the, in the teenage brain particularly? Why, it's, why is it slightly different to our adult brain? Okay, thanks, Will. Actually, the teenage brain is so exciting. And those of you guys who are lucky enough to still be teenage in the room, this is such an amazing time because it's this time of releasing an amazing potential. And what we know now, because brain imaging has become so much better, is that the teenage brain is changing almost as much as you would see in the periods of rapid change, like when um, kids are toddlers and growing up through that really early primary stage. So when we scan the brains of teenagers, we see huge amounts of change going on, literally in the architecture of the brain just fine-tuning of some of the areas, particularly at the front of the brain. So we know that there are some things that teenagers do experience different to us old adults. And it's really interesting to think about which aspects, therefore, of, of life and the way that they experience stuff is different to how we would experience it now that we're old and a bit less interesting. And so the, uh, the frontal lobe you described, that's the part that's responsible for things like impulse control. Is that right? Or, or regulating our emotions? Yeah, so there's a huge bunch of key things that are involved in that frontal part. And it is generally about fine-tuning behavior and the way we interact with the world. So things like how your emotions are triggered, how powerful they are, how you motivate yourself, how you manage impulse control, how you do the more complex side of relationships. All of this stuff is, is mediated by that frontal part of your brain. So it sounds like it's super dynamic during the teenage years, and we work towards brain finalization, which is slightly different, isn't it, in, in women and in men, men slightly younger, uh, sorry, later, slightly later, women, sorry, men slightly late, earlier, women slightly later. But generally, there's this intense period between sort of 13 and 17 where things are really, really happening. Yeah, I mean, actually, the age of onset is so variable, I would even hesitate to put any kind of gender thing on it. Because the reality is, is that in the same class, and Steve, you all have come across this in schools, I'm sure, you can have some kids who've gone through quite a lot of the sort of cognitive and psychological changes of puberty, of adolescence, and some who have barely even started. So in the same age group of kids, you can have quite a wide range of different um, abilities in the way that they see what's going on. 
Now, Steve, as a deputy headmaster, doesn't it seem ironic that we take young people whose brains are in this rapid cycle of development and change, and at the same time, we make them undertake the kind of most extensive exams of their whole life and the sort of deepest educative period. And we, we're sort of superloading uh, teenagers, both with education and brain change. How, how do we support, or how do young people support their educative development at the same time that their brain is going through so many of these significant changes? Yeah, it's a great question, and... Um... And it, it, it's one that comes up in our school quite a lot because it's a time when teenagers, you'll know this, you generally get a bit more tired and you don't want to get up in the morning. So we, every year I have a little delegation who come and see me and I, why can't school start at half 10 in the morning or 11 in the morning? Um, so it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing mixture of things going on. Um, the reason I went into teaching is because primarily it is a really fun time, a bit like um, Scylla mentioned and as Kate has also said. So um, although there's all this stuff swirling around in um, your teenage brains, uh, it's a really fun time. And I remember in my first term as a teacher, I was teaching in a big comprehensive just outside Cambridge. And I, I, got, I got a great experience of this firsthand. I was, I was quite a young teacher and I joined a department and there were just two other French teachers they were both quite old they were very fierce French ladies and they didn't make me feel very welcome and they were really stern and during the course of that term one one of these ladies started to soften and she started to smile and then I thought she'd winked at me I said what's what's going on here and it turned out that my year 10 French set this group of the boys had been writing love letters to this lady on my behalf and uh, <laughs> And she thought, oh, here we go. And um, I just thought that was an amazing, I thought, this is why I'm in teaching. Just to give some of you teenagers as well a bit of an idea for when you go back in September. Um, but there's all this stuff going on. And um, yeah, in terms of how, how you can support yourselves, um, uh, some of these things we, I'm sure we'll come back to in the next half an hour. But um, at Brighton, we, we've tried to come up with a sort of five a day that we're all used to in terms of um, sort of, you know, the, the, the approach to eat more vegetables. But in terms of emotional and, and mental health, uh, with a group of pu- large group of pupils, we came up with five things that we could try and think about. Maybe we won't do them all every day, but five sort of habits that would contribute. Um, and they rather cheesily spell out happy. But just to, as a sort of quick overview, the, the H was being healthy. And we're going to think a bit about diet and sleep in particular. The A was for thinking about whether we can be active, like get out and you don't have to run around, but actually just be a bit active. First P was being prepared to talk, and that's something I'm sure we'll come back to. You know, just um, in some ways, the teenage brain is like a bottle of Coke that's getting shaken a bit. And then these exams that you mentioned, well, it's like, if you, I don't know if you've ever done this in a youth event. If you make, make somebody drink some Coke and then put an Alka-Seltzer in their mouth and see how long they can hold their mouth closed for. It's a great trick to do as well, on, uh, maybe not on your teachers, maybe on your mates. But it's like you need a little outlet, and being prepared to talk is, is like that safety valve of just releasing some of this stuff that's building up. The second P is being prepared to help others, and, uh, and the why is about being yourself. And um, for me, and I think for all of us here, that the end goal is just a, the question, how can I be myself? You know, th- there's all this stuff going on, and, um, you know, we're trying to work out still as adults, but particularly as teenagers, who am I? What makes me, me? What are my thoughts? What do I believe? What, what's important to me? And the end goal is ultimately to have the confidence to be yourself. And this period, uh, the, the period of adolescence, is a period when we, we question a lot of the core beliefs, values, relationships that we've previously taken for granted. So a healthy child is well attached, but the process of becoming a teenager and adolescent is about detaching, isn't it, Kate? Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are many challenges of, of, of adolescence in this phase, and it is a phase. So you don't go to sleep one day a kid and wake up the next day a fully-fledged adult. It takes time, and there are these things that you've got to learn. And yeah, it is about detaching about becoming your own person becoming an independent adult independent in particular from the people who've been your main supports over the years as you've grown up as a child so that might mean about the most basic things like trying to get yourself out of bed to get to school on time for example it might mean what do you think about something do you agree with your parents and the answer is usually no 
just so you know, in this phase. And that's actually why it's, it's so often, isn't it? Because the job of a teenager is to think, well, hang on, what do I think about this? So as kids, we know that cognitively you're really, really biased, that you, you, you only really see the world from your own point of view. And then as you go into adolescence, as your brain starts to change, you develop the ability to, to understand in much greater detail the different perspectives that other people have on you, but also on any big topic, anything that, any big debate, faith, um, politics, anything like that. So for teenagers, suddenly there's this world of options out there. And your job is to think, well, hang on, what do I think about this? Not to go along with whatever your parents told you. Is that what you've experienced, Steve? Yeah, definitely. And again, it's why schools are such vibrant places because, um, you know, you want to have an environment where they are challenging and questioning and, and thinking for themselves. So, uh, you know, most of our best ideas at school have come from pupils who have said, well, why are we not doing this? Or, um, you know, this sort of passion for a particular thing. We're trying to have a big sort of anti-plastic, um, sort of sorry, uh, water bottles. But um, that came from pupils who are like, hang on a minute, we live by the sea, we're saying the ocean's really important, and yet you know, which sort of handing out thousands of water bottles. But that was, that was from them questioning and challenging what they saw adults doing. So um, any Christian parents of teenagers in the room, there's quite a lot of you, wanting to understand why their teenager has become quite arbitrary around the dinner table, why what they're saying doesn't go anymore. It's, no, it's not really a spiritual problem. It's not a problem of parental discipline. It's a positive reality around a young person's individuation, their identification as, a, as a independent from adulthood. So a lot of the arguments maybe you've been having in your tent this week have got nothing to do with whether or not you're a good or a bad parent. They're your teenager testing out their independence and teenagers go for it. Uh, parents won't thank me for that comment. Yeah, um, and I, I love that, Will, even just in what we were talking about is that two sides of teenagers. Because usually when people come to see me and they grown ups, when they come and see me about their teenagers, teenagers, they want to tell me about how they're they're being really difficult, they're yelling a lot, they question everything, they don't listen to a thing I say anymore. And I always say that's brilliant. That's really healthy teenagers. It's not so easy when it's in your house. I have a teenager myself, and I do kind of enjoy being the, the uh, psychologist a little more than the parent sometimes. But what's amazing is exactly what Steve was talking about, their ability to see the world in different, from a different perspective, to ask questions, to say, well, hang on, who says this is right? Maybe it's not, and we can learn so much from that as adults. Steve, self-esteem and identity have always been kind of key issues for younger people, but you know, we talk a lot about self-esteem and self-identity Clearly, our world is changing significantly. I know social media is something that nearly everyone here will be engaged in one way or another. Have you seen in schools particularly how self-esteem and, and, and identity have been impacted by s social media and any tips on how we can use that for good rather than for ill? Um, yeah, uh, I think so. I mean, maybe some tips. Although, again, um, in our school, all the best tips have come from the pupils. So um, we, we had a group of guys and we gave them a bit of training from some experts, so not from me, uh, but they created some pupil codes of conduct for things like Snapchat and Instagram that we put around the school, which was them saying, look, we're all using um, these platforms. If we're going to use it safely and sensibly, then let's agree a sort of pupil code for, for how we're going to use it. So they then became our, our sort of plumb lines for, for you know, good, wise conduct. Um, I think just the self-esteem, I think as a, as a parent myself as well, you sort of, it's, it's almost one of the single most important gifts if I could give to my three girls. I'd just love to be able to give them a, a real shot of self-esteem every morning, you know, and for them to hold their heads up high and think, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, they're confident about who they are. And, and that's really challenging. I, I think in some ways the themes have been the same for generations, you know, the temptation to compare and, uh, you know, I definitely was like this. I think we all probably were to an extent of looking at others and, and wishing that I was more like them or wishing I could be a bit more like that person. And, and schools are a sort of melting pot. I'm sure lots of you teenagers would relate to that if you sit in an assembly or a class and you can quickly look to the person, um, you know, on your left or your right and you think, oh, I just wish I could sing a bit more like her. I wish I could speak more confidently like him. And... And I guess social media just sort of magnifies that ability to compare and to present a certain way, but particularly to compare. And that's where I guess the, the self-esteem, the confidence 
is so important. And, and I guess one, just one practical thing on that, the thing we found most helpful in that is that second P I mentioned about being prepared to help others. Probably the single best way that somebody gets that shot of self-esteem is when they've maybe, uh, we've, we've encouraged people to, to visit some of the elderly homes which are right near our school or gone to help at a primary school or we've gotten involved in mentoring and they didn't think they could do it and then they just come back 45 minutes, 50 minutes later and they feel like they've made a difference, maybe in a very small way, but, but they've actually contributed something and they just, their chests are sort of puffed out a bit more and they're like, wow, I've, I've actually done something amazing that I didn't think I could do beforehand. So the sort of, yeah, nudging them um, towards maybe volunteering. Um, I take a group to at St. Peter's. We have a, a great um, series of events each week for the, the street community and the homeless called Safe Haven. So I take a group of pupils there and, you know, and they come back from that always thinking, wow, I, I didn't realize I had anything to give. And, and they've spent the evening just chatting and serving meals and it's like, yeah, like, like that bottled self-esteem that you wish you could give, and actually we can give. And, and actually, generationally, the uh, generations coming through, the millennials and below, are more socially conscious than, than our generations ever were, which is, which is quite exciting. And I think a lot of energy for transformation, global lobbying, you know, it, it's all coming out of that sort of age group. Was, and just to chip in on that, maybe as families, one of the great things you could do on the back of focus, um, or if you're a teenager and you're on here, not with your family, something to take home. And just to say, um, it's a question I borrowed from a friend, but he challenged me once and said, how is your family changing the world? Um, which is sort of, you know, like a massive question. But thinking as a family, have we got a purpose that's bigger than us? Is there a way in which we could volunteer together or could we sponsor a child together? Or, you know, what, what are we doing as a family? And on the back of that, you know, how is our family taking risks? How is our family having adventures? You know, but broadly, it's sort of giving your family unit as well a sense in which you can make a difference as a family unit. Kate, we, we're talking a lot at the moment about uh, youth and adolescent mental health and about the challenges that CAMS and other mental health services are suffering from in the UK. The UK has been dubbed the self-harm capital of Europe. Manchester is the self-harm city of Europe. Uh, we spend a lot of time pathologizing mental health amongst young people, and I wonder whether some of the young people in the room, some of the parents there, feel a bit afraid around sort of mental health issues. Maybe their children are um, experiencing fluctuating mood in the teenage years, and they're concerned that they have got you know, a significant problem uh, about uh, sort of onset. What, what would you say to reassure those teenagers here and parents who who are concerned that uh, you know, fluctuations in mood automatically mean that? You you've got a, a developing mental health problem. Yeah, I think this is, it's a, it's a big topic, isn't it? And maybe in a bit we'll, we'll talk about how, what are the signs that maybe you should be more concerned and seek some extra help. But just to set the context, first of all, we need to be aware of what's going on emotionally for teenagers. So because of the way that your brains are, t are changing, those of you who are still in your teens here, you do experience emotions in a slightly different way from adults. And what this is about sometimes is about just how quickly emotions are triggered. So your brain triggers emotions, all of us in this room. Your emotions have a purpose. So we have to remember that at essence, emotions aren't an illness. They are part of the healthy functioning of your brain. So if we set as an aim for every person in this room that we would eradicate all negative emotions, we would never succeed. And if we did, we wouldn't be able to function. So your brain triggers emotions when it's trying to grab your attention to tell you that something significant is going on and you need to pay attention to it. But we know that for teenagers, there's, there's a couple of different things that go on. And firstly, it's to do with what you find significant. So teenage brains are hardwired to be utterly focused on certain things and they're much more emotionally triggering than they would be to, to us. So relationships, for example, because part of your teen challenge is to figure out relationships, to get good at making friends, to start building one-to-one -one relationships as you're looking to adult life. When something happens in your friendships, it's going to trigger a big emotional thing because this matters to your brain. And what usually happens is you come home and you share with mom, dad, or whoever's at home, and they're like, man, you are seriously overreacting. But you're not. What we need to understand as grown-ups is that to the teen you're talking to, it, it is that bad. It's triggered this big emotion. 
So we have to understand that the triggering of emotions is different. We also need to understand that how quickly your mood can change is different for teenagers to adults. So do, do we have the graphs of this? Well, or I don't I think we have it? that, but the, okay, the, I'm gonna, the, I'm gonna the moderated and graph here to do Okay, yeah. so if you imagine your emotions on a graph, can I stand up? Is yeah, please one? stand, Kate. So if you imagine your emotions on a graph and you've got like naught here, and you've got plus 10 somewhere up here. I'm not very tall, but somewhere up there. I'm not and then like, 10. okay, this is good. Will is very tall. And somewhere down here, you've got minus 10. So in the top zone here, you've got all the good emotions. And then down here, you've got all the difficult ones. So like anger, if you're feeling sad, anxious, stuff like that. So we could draw on this graph our emotions. So I could get you, Will, to like keep a chart of your emotions over the average week. Yeah. Now, you are um, not a teenager, right? Sadly, I'm still obviously yeah, yeah, close yeah, to 20. In, in his early 30s. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Anyway, yeah. So as adults, if we did that, our emotional trace would kind of mosey on around the middle here. It's quite, it's quite, it's quite tedious, actually. So I often say to adults that the, the good news is it takes a lot to get us really sad, or really, really, really cross, unless life has thrown some big challenges at us, of course. The bad news is it takes a lot to get us really excited. We don't have those, like, eight to ten moments as much. Teenage emotions, though, if we could draw the graph, it would be really up, down, up, down, really dramatic, changing all over the place. Thank you so much. And people often come to me and say, teenagers will say to me, "I I, I think I'm bipolar. Right. Because they've heard about that on the TV or whatever. Um, parents will say, like, something is wrong with my teen. They're having these massive emotions, but it's actually normal. Mood, mood swings are seriously normal. Yeah. And uh, just a couple of um, sort of follow-on points. First is that I think um, a lot of the pupils are really good at keeping a lid on those things in school. So we probably often see the best of you guys in school, and therefore at home, that's when the lid comes off, and then the, the you know, the full range comes out. Um, I think, secondly, just to link that to physical health, though, that's, that's so normal, isn't it? That, you know, I feel like generally I am healthy, but sometimes I do get ill. Sometimes I get a headache or I've got a sore throat. Um, and, th- and in other words, what Kate's described brilliantly is it's dynamic. You know, it's, we tend to want to try and create, say, well, there's this state. It's a thing. It's a label. And sometimes that is absolutely the right thing to do. But often there just is this dynamic movement which we are really comfortable and familiar with with our physical health. That, you know, generally we're doing pretty well and quite healthy, but sometimes I feel quite below par. Um, the best, is, I mean, this will be too young, I'm sure, for lots of you teenagers, but many of you may have seen the film Inside Out, um, which is this great sort of um, portrayal of the emotions inside a little girl's head. Um, vying, they're all the different emotions, anger and joy, and they're vying for contr- at the controls. It's sort of a computer setup. And actually, when things are difficult, is when one emotion dominates the controls and they try to shut sadness out completely. Uh, exactly what Kate was describing, saying, no, we don't want that negative emotion. Actually, when the little girl in the film Inside Out is doing really well, it's a great animated film, by the way. It sounds a bit serious and heavy, but it's a really fun sort of animated film. When she's doing well, it's when all the emotions are working together and there's this, there is this range, there is this dynamic change of how she's doing. Yeah. Just to, sorry, Kate, I was just going to say, just to speak into that again from the Christian perspective, I think it's very, very important that everyone in the room accepts that, that emotions aren't prohibited in the Scriptures, but actually emotions are welcomed, and that Jesus demonstrates the full range of emotion. Jesus wasn't just happy all the time, floating three quarters of an inch off the floor. You know, Jesus, he sheds tears, you know, he's filled with anguish and despair, you know, he's seriously angry, uh, he's filled with joy. You know, if you actually read the New Testament, you see that Jesus' emotions are, are hugely fluctuating. And for, for teenagers and teenagers in the room, I want to, I want to encourage you to know that, that there's, there's no sort of spiritual outcome or some, there's not a negativity to your emotion. In the Bible it says, in your anger do not sin. It does, does not say do not be angry. Uh, it says, in your anger do not sin. So there's, there's no prohibition against the emotion the call is to, to use the emotion appropriately and, and to make sure you're making healthy decisions around the emotion. And so giving, giving you teenagers here today permission to experience a full range of emotions is really, really important to us. Uh, and to also 
be able to observe your emotion more effectively. And one of the ways in which you can do that practically is to, call, is to keep what we call an emotions diary. Now, you can use that as extensively or, 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 or small as you, as you like. But to, to write your emotions or to chart your emotions as a daily experience, a bit of the highs and lows. It can be as simple as that. I felt super angry today about X. I felt super happy about X. I felt super n- not very much about such a situation, I thought I should feel more. So when you keep an emotions diary, what you do is you actually will chart to a level the fluctuations of your emotions. But over time, what you'll do is you'll recognise that your emotions self-regulate largely. if, if If you feel that you identify only with it all up, when you're down, you'll feel like there's something wrong with you. If you identify only with the all down, you'll fail to recognize the all up. And actually, as Kate's just described, your emotional track trace will be very, very fluctuating, but it doesn't mean it's abnormal. So accept the full range of emotions. And Christian parents in the room, please, can we encourage you not to shut down your teenagers' emotions? So doing things, saying things like, don't be so angry, is, is to actually suppress their ex- emotional expression and say that's not okay. The Japanese describe depression as just anger turned inwards. We don't want to compress someone's emotion and say that's unacceptable in a household. What you do with that anger that's important in the household, but the fact that you're angry is not something that should be prohibited. Is that, is that a fair point? I definitely think it's a fair point. Um, one of the things we've trained some of our older pupils, who we call them peer mentors, to do is, is a really simple thing that um, you can do yourself as teenagers or you might find it helpful in a one-to-one conversation. But think about a sort of one-to-ten scale and ask somebody just to say, well, you know, about this particular area, how are you feeling? You know, would you give it a four out of ten? Are you a three out of ten? And with, with some, with the, in this sort of relationship with some of the, the pupils who have a peer mentor, often the starter is just to say, what, what's today? You know, is it a three out of ten, a four out of ten? And then a simple follow-up is, you know, not that it's really bad that you're 3 out of 10 or 2 out of 10, but what would it take for you to go from being a 2 out of 10 to, say, a 4 out of 10? So, in other words, the aim isn't necessarily that you are 10 out of 10 every single day. In fact, not at all. But just a simple thing of what what would it look like? Could you describe what it might feel like to move from being a 2 out of 10 to being a 4 or 5 out of 10? And just starting to, I guess give the young person control and, to, and a, bit, a sense of, actually, I, yeah, I, th- I think I could picture just moving from a two to a five or from a four to a six. Yeah, and I think one of the things that as grown-ups we need to understand as parents or teachers or youth workers or whatever our relationship is, is that part of our job is to help teenagers figure out these emotions. Because Steve talked about when um, one emotion comes to dominate. And one emotion that we know is difficult is anxiety, is fear. And so often what happens when we experience an emotion that we don't really want, maybe it's not convenient, maybe we're not sure if it's okay, or we know that we shouldn't be uh, expressing it in school or at home or whatever, is that we become afraid of it. And we do then try and squash it down. But the, the job of your emotions is to get your attention. They don't just go away. So as parents, as adults in the room, we have to help teens learn how to manage emotions. And sometimes what we need to do is understand how they are affecting young people. So particularly emotions like fear and anger, one of the interesting things that happens is when they are really strong, which is quite common for teens, one of the things they do is they actually start to switch off your rational mind. So you're not as able to rationalize, to talk it through. So if you've got a teen in front of you who is absolutely incensed, furious with you for what you've done, or they've totally lost it in school, or they're really freaking out about something that they're really anxious about. And quite often as adults, we want to sit down, let's talk it through, let's discuss this. And that's almost impossible. It would be almost impossible for an adult experiencing that level of emotion. But for your teen, it's just not going to happen. So sometimes we need to help them, like you were saying, using this sort of number scale of saying, are are you at the top end? So thinking of anger and anxiety, are you in the 8 to 10 zone? We talk about emotional hijack. When, When you're being hijacked by your emotion, you cannot think clearly. And so helping them understand that if they're in that zone, the only thing you can do in that moment is somehow calm yourself down, take some time out take a moment to drop the level and then sure. later maybe you can chat about it but that, that's a strategy obviously it's used in schools to the time out you know it's not a punishment so much as it's an opportunity to reflect and dial back some of the strong i mean there's a huge physiological response that's taking place in a young person and an adult who's experiencing anxiety and so the time out allows that anxiety spike to drop 
actually we describe the frontal lobe sometimes as the policeman of your mind and it, and it polices the thoughts that are produced by a small walnut-shaped piece of brain material at the back of your head called the amygdala. So the amygdala is, is throwing curveballs at your brain all the time and the policeman of your mind is catching them apart from the fact that when you're so activated with anxiety or anger, your policeman goes to sleep just when you need him the most. And so we have to like make some time out for the policeman to wake up again in order to find those rational curveballs to catch them and to offer something better back. And if I just, on a slight tangent, just for parents, I'd really encourage you because I, um, you know, I know as well that all these things we're describing can trigger as well different emotions in parents of teens. And um, I'd really encourage you to maybe take, for example, that, you know, um, if ever you've been on a plane and they do that briefing about saying, you know, if the air pressure falls, fit your own oxygen mask before you fit, you know, a, a small child or whatever it is. That sort of same principle um, when we're traveling, invariably, Mandy's amazing and she packs the girls' bags um, and then usually forgets something for herself because she packs her own bag last of all. And I think sometimes we can be really caught up as parents um, of, of any age children, actually, but all, particularly, I would say, secondary age children in thinking, you know, what do they need, what do they need, I must help out. And actually, I'll just encourage you as parents, give yourself permission to pack your own bag first um, or, you know, fit the oxygen. In other words, make sure you're journeying with someone, a really sort of non-judgmental, great friend where you can say, look, this is going on, I'm feeling this, is this normal? Um, and you, you can, you know, you've got a safe place yourself to just talk through some of these things. Um, even, you know, actually, it's healthy to have, um, let's say, you know, go for a run yourself or do something that actually just fuels you, gives you the energy and the capacity to keep going and keep going. Because actually, none of us are limitless, even with God's strength. I think we all have a, a tipping point. And so I'd encourage you to give yourself permission um, and to look after yourself, to be in it for the long haul, so that when your teenager most needs you, you've got a bit of capacity, you've got some energy, you've got some headspace to give to them at that moment. Kate, we talked a bit earlier about um, fluctuations of emotions being entirely normal. What, what, what would you say to anyone who's actually genuinely concerned that what they're experiencing isn't normal? And, and, and how would you help a parent to support a younger person who's maybe experiencing something that needs additional support moving forward? Yeah, definitely. That's a really good question and an important one. And it is hard because the teenage years are sometimes dramatic. I have a teenager at home and so I know how, how um, full on those moods can feel sometimes, just the normal ups and downs of teenage life. If you think about that graph that we were talking about, what, what am I looking, when, I, when teens come to see me, what would make me think, well, maybe there's more going on here? There's probably two things I'm looking for. Um, and one is about what happens when the mood does dip into the bottom half, the sort of naught to, to 10 zone. And as you said, normal emotions do, do lift, they resolve, they, they, they process, and, and gradually the trend is to go back up. But if you're seeing a pattern that you're experiencing low mood that won't shift, that you get into these moods and then you're finding it really hard to shift it, you're feeling really weighed down by it. They're lasting for a long time. That, that might be an indication that, that you could do with extra support or learning some, help with learning some new skills for how do you lift your mood. I call the bottom half of that graph the minus 5 to minus 10 zone, the swamp zone. Because when you get stuck in it, it's really hard to get out. Sometimes you need a mate to give you a pull or chuck you a rope or some good skills to claw your way out. So sometimes you need a bit of help learning that stuff. And as a teen, you, you, you aren't not born with those skills. You have to learn them, so sometimes that can be helpful. The other thing is, is the really extreme low moods. So if you're, you as a, as a teen yourself or as an adult even, or anyone that you're supporting or um, sharing your life with, if you're experiencing a lot of those really minus nine, minus tens, those are intense emotions. Now, it's, it's hard with teens because they often express their emotions in quite a binary way. So I'm either fine or I, it's absolutely dreadful. But if you, particularly as, as an adult, um, someone who's um, supporting teens, if your instinct is they're having a lot of these really powerful moods, it's good to get some support and investigate that. And on the whole, I would say if your instinct is to be concerned, go with that instinct. You know, as parents, we get, we get a bad rep, but actually our instincts are generally pretty good. And if you're feeling like someone who you love, someone who you care for, 
they've changed. They don't seem fully themselves. They don't see, they, they don't see, it feels like they're weighed down by something. It's always good to go and chat that over with the GP, maybe support them to go and have a conversation. And, and there's some physiological signs we can also look out for. So if you're yeah. a young person and your appetite, for example, disappears, yeah. it's quite a significant indication that something might be going on there. Not necessarily physiological, but potentially psychological. So ha- something happening in your mind. Yeah, so it, we look, change in appetite, change yeah. in sleep. Things like that also yeah. would be indications. And, and that parental thing of if your child just doesn't seem themselves but you can't put your finger on it, then that's often the time to get some help. Again, it's so important. Mental health stigma is something that our nation is beginning to wake up to. But it's amazing how many young people, particularly we still speak to, who feel that they would be letting their parents down if they talk to them about how they're feeling emotionally. And so they see their emotional dysfunction potentially as a sign that they have done something wrong. Interestingly, one of the uh, identifying features of depression is unreasonable guilt. So Christians often have unreasonable guilt to high measure anyway, but a Christian young person who believes that they should be joyful... Uh, and feels uh, really despairing for a long period of time will often carry a feeling that they're not they're letting their parents down by not being joyful they're potentially letting God down by not being joyful and they're more likely to keep those emotions to themselves because they're concerned that they don't want to disappoint others but actually that's why we as parents need to be very positive in our intervention in terms of having open and honest conversations yeah I was just going to chip in sorry Kate quickly to say that therefore for um for you as teenagers, just find somebody to talk to, um, that, that sort of idea of a, a bit of a valve, just to get, get some of this out. And, and to be really clear, it doesn't have to be your parents, okay? I think, um, actually, there are a whole range of different people you could chat to. It might be that your parents are exactly the right person. Um, you could just say to your parents, do you know what, there is stuff going on, but I'm going to talk about it with a different person. So hopefully there's really good people in school. Um, and as well as made really clear, you know, I, we've tried to make access to our school counsellor as easy, as easy as possible. The bar is so low, people can go there for a one-off. There is definitely no stigma. It's like, yeah, great, you know, we all need to get stuff off our chest. We all need just to sort of walk lightly and not hold on to stuff and hold on to stuff. And maybe you've got a great brother or sister or a cousin or a fantastic godparent. And parents, you might want to just sometimes nudge some of these people there. I've got a very brilliant um, brother I can think of. In fact, two brilliant brothers. But my younger brother particularly is really, um, really amazing. I think I could nudge him in future and say, could you have a particular conversation, for example, or my sister, who would be brilliant with, I think, one of my daughters. And I could nudge her and say, could you just have a conversation because I don't think I'm the right person to initiate that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We have to bear in mind that for, for our teens, those of us who are parents, part of their job is to detach from us. So hopefully they do discuss loads of stuff with us, but they do have a right to some privacy, and it is important that some parts of their life are separate from us increasingly as they grow up. So one of the things we know from research is that the most protective thing for a teen who's experiencing challenges is do they have another adult they can talk to who is not a parent? That's massively helpful. And I think what we need to be aware of with emotional ill health is that it's brilliant we talk about it so much more now, but so often the conversation can be become focused on emotional ill health. We talk all the time about people who are struggling with this, they've got anxiety, they've had it all their life. We need to remember that actually emotional health, like physical health, goes up and down, and you can get well from this stuff, and particularly for teens. I want to encourage you guys, you would not believe how many adults that you see around really struggled when they were teenagers. You see the adults and think, oh man, they're so together. If you knew some of us when we were teenagers, you would not think that, believe me. And your teenage brain is so amazing, so adaptable, so much is still up for grabs. You can learn so much about yourself and the world, how to manage your emotions, how to do this stuff. Don't, be, don't panic if you are struggling a bit at a time in your teens, because with, with some good support, you can work through that. And actually, you will end up stronger than some of your mates who maybe never hit those challenges. That's so helpful, Kate. I, I think if you're a parent here, you'll remember what it's like to have a small child. They can get very ill very quickly. And they can make an incredible recovery equally quickly. One minute you're in hospital, the next minute you're in McDonald's. And the teenage brain works in a slightly similar way. Please avoid catastrophizing your child's behavior at any particular point as being, oh, clearly my daughter or my son's going to have a chronic experience of depression. Very few young people, very few proportionately, go on to have a chronic 
issue which will last a lifetime. Uh, only a tiny proportion of those who experience some sort of neurotic disorder in childhood go on to have a chronic problem in adulthood. So keep a very open and flexible mind as you move forward. We're going to talk for a few minutes now about how we can support emotional health. Well, Steve, how important is sleep to the educational performance of students in your school? And teachers, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, really important. Um, and it, all these things are sort of tied up, aren't they? So, for example, I would say um, among... So our school is a boarding school, and we've, we've um, taken some pretty obvious steps, I guess, in terms of devices and screen time so that our boarders are not having um, the chance to game, for example. So among, um, lot, we found that among a lot of our boys quite a while ago, they were, they were up really late at night gaming, and then they were exhausted and they were absolutely shattered, and it was having a huge impact on just actually their ability to have a conversation or to be a, not just alert but <laughs> awake in some classes. Um, so th- it, lots of these things are connected, I think. And so I think, I think actually it is very healthy that there are some limits um, you know, freedom uh, is not the absence of boundaries and limits. Um, I think there's a writer called Tim Keller who talked about love um, being the most liberating loss of freedom. Um, and actually, there are times, I think, in school, I find, and in our family as well, when, when it's, it's the most loving, the best thing to do is to put just certain really healthy limits around things. Um, and, and sleep, I think, Kate will know much better than me, but... Um, Sleep is when our body is basically doing all its really good recharging, you know, and actually we are, we're probably used to, aren't we? We, we know with our phones every day, maybe not so much a focus, but we know we have to plug our phones in. Our phones need recharging. We just do that without thinking. Um, and actually our bodies are the same and sleep is when we plug in and we get, we need to have good sleep. On that connectedly, you know, one of the simplest things we've done is buy a charge point and stick it downstairs. And a, and a challenge that I put to my teachers and to my parents and, and to you guys here as well, is, you know, what, what are you modeling in terms of screen use, screen time? Have you, are you on your screens in the evening? Um, because actually, why should your teenage sons and daughters do anything different? Have you got your phones in your bedroom as I sometimes do? And actually, you know, as a family, let's just get into the habit of all of us, mum, dad, everyone, plug your phones and your devices in downstairs in the kitchen and, and make sure that bedrooms and those spaces are actually screen free just because we need to switch off while our phones are being charged up and kate there's a natural reason why teenagers need more sleep that's true isn't it yeah well it's it's actually it is a little bit about more sleep so if we look at how much sleep children need start they they obviously start out needing more and then um as they go through the primary years it gets a bit less a bit less a bit less and then when you hit the teenage years interestingly your sleep need does go back up a bit so you do go back to needing a little bit more sleep but what's really interesting is because of the way your hormones are changing is what happens to your natural sleep-wake cycle because that's influenced by a hormone called melatonin and because of some of the other hormones, it's, it's not that interesting, but they all interact. Your melatonin levels change a bit. So teenagers, in effect, act on about a three-hour time lag. So teenagers, you're going to love this in the room. So genuinely, the natural teen sleep-wake cycle would be to stay up quite late and sleep in quite late. So I, my 13-year-old, my it is the holidays. I was in work the other day. She texted me at, at 20 to 1, and I said, oh, how was your morning? She said, morning, I just, I just got up. Now, that's pretty normal for teenagers, actually. And this is why you were talking about the teens who come and ask you to start school late. My daughter would love to have that debate with you. She thinks school should definitely start late. And there are some schools that have done that because some teens, they do find it really hard to get up early. But actually, the most common thing that steals sleep from our teens is the same as what steals sleep from us as adults. It is procrastination. It's just not going to sleep. And Steve is dead right. Devices are probably the main cause. I think there's some interesting stuff around uh, a lot of caffeine use for some teens who are drinking a lot of caffeine and then wonder why they're so wired they can't sleep. But on the whole, it is about social media and switching devices off. We know that one of the things that these backlit devices do is they shine this blue light right into your eyes. You have cells at the back of your eye that link to that bit of your brain that controls sleep-wake cycle. So when you're using your device late at night, it's, it's like the sun hitting your eyes and it, it causes a delay in your natural tendency to feel drowsy and go to sleep. So one of the simplest changes we know that can make a difference to sleep is plugging devices in downstairs. Partly that's psychological, it's for distraction, 
because you think you're not distracted by it, but somewhere in your brain, you're always thinking, oh, I wonder if I got any WhatsApp, or I wonder, oh, I wonder if I got messages, or, you know, and so if it's downstairs, it's literally out of sight, out of mind. But some of it is, are you likely to be using it? Is it going to be disrupted? It's, neurologically, sleep is the only time that our brain rejuvenates. So oh, yeah. um, There is some amazing research looking at the, the, the fluid that circulates your brain, showing that some of the big spaces where that fluid can move really freely, they open up while you're sleeping. And the theory is that it's literally like washing the stresses of the day, some of the waste chemicals and things that have been produced in, in your brain. And, and it, it is absolutely essential. I mean, you're not allowed to do the Guinness World Record for staying awake anymore yeah, because, because people it's too die. Dangerous. People I mean, die. you need to sleep. People generally die from not sleeping which is remarkable uh, again just a word again as a, as, a, as a pastor to parents I know my mum used to open the door of my bedroom every day at 7 o'clock and let the dog in to, to, just to kind of jump on my bed and then she would throw open the curtain and say morning uh, and that was sort of discipline and kind of habit because in our family you know being lazy wasn't one of the things we would going to accommodate but just an encouragement again if you're a teenager and you need to sleep especially during the holidays our encouragement is to sleep as much as you possibly can and again to Christian parents not to sort of not to feel like there's laziness or lack of virtue in the family but to actually say this is good for my child there will be a time when they do not want to sleep so much when they're my age they'll be waking up with the dawn chorus and uh, but let's leave them to that time and let's hope that they get there healthily. And so while we're, while we're growing them to adulthood, let's give them the space that they need to sleep really well. But it's a very simple thing. It's a very practical thing, but it's a very, very important thing. Well, one of the things we were discussing, wasn't it, was that, um, that often as adults, we treat what we see teenagers doing rather than thinking more consciously about why they might be doing what they're doing. We've already said that the frontal lobe controls impulse and therefore react, being heavily reacted or reactive is something that is common in teenagers. Um, when they break the pot plant, we start shouting them about the pot plant, but actually it might be the HALT acronym that we need to address. Steve, is that something you found helpful in schools? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think the HALT may be something that Nikki and Silla came up with. I'm not sure. Certainly we came across it, first of all, in, in one of the parenting on the marriage courses. It's HALT um, stands for Hungry, Anxious, Lonely, Tired. And actually with our staff... Um, I will always encourage at the start of every term, just remind staff to ask themselves this simple question, what else is going on here? What else is going on here? So when you see the outburst or the tears or the whatever it might be, um, the silence, the withdrawing, um, you know, that's like the warning light on the dashboard to just ask that question, what else is going on here? Because it's probably not that thing. And, and maybe the first level question I find really helpful both at home and in school is the H-A-L-T. Are they hungry? For me, asking that of myself, that's where I stop. I just need to get to the fridge. Um, I'm always hungry, and that's probably the reason why I'm grumpy and not really um, talking very well to Mandy. So hungry, anxious. You know, gosh, for you teens, it may be that you're aware that you're anxious about something, a friendship or a test coming up, or, but it may be that you're not aware that it's just actually an anxiety that's a little bit more deeper-rooted and you haven't really clocked it. Lonely. Um, actually, you know, we were talking, Mandy and I were talking with somebody surrounded here by people at Focus, but that person was feeling lonely um, and tired. You know, gosh, I'm, I won't ask for a show of hands of anyone who is not feeling tired. Um, but they're, they're four really simple checks, really, self-checks that you can do um, or, or to ask yourself the question in the family in a different situation, what else, is, what else could be going on here? And that's an appraisal that, that, young, that younger people, uh, teenagers in the room, that you can do for yourself. And we would really encourage you to, 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 to begin to make appraisals of your own thoughts. Appraisals just to review what you think you're thinking uh, and ask yourself some important questions, such as, is this really what I'm upset about? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean your external response is going to be any different, but it's helpful for you to know, is this what I'm really upset about? And try and dig deep. Your first response to your mum and her how was school today um, might be a furious one. It's unlikely to be the reason for your fury. And it will help both parent and teenager to understand each other better if your first reaction is not to your first response. It's more to ask the question, 
you know, could, could there be something else going on? Most intuitive parents will recognise that there's something going on and that can be helped when, as a teenager, you're also asking, is there something else going on? And you could say, you know, mum, I'm sorry, I'm seriously angry. I, I feel like it's you, but I think maybe there's something else that's upset me. I'm not ready to talk about it yet, but if I am, then I'll let you know. It, what you're doing is you're agreeing that there's a slightly broader narrative to your emotional response. And what that is, it's super comforting for parents because they don't feel like they are the locus of all the world's problems. It's also super comforting for the teenager because they also recognise that their parents aren't the disaster that they believe that they are. So, you know, you can kind of find a halfway house of self-appraisal to, to find a better way forward. Yeah, and I think in families, sometimes it can be helpful to have a shorthand for that because I think we've got to remember... I, I love your response there, but even, even the adult in me is thinking, man, when I'm really mad, I'm going to struggle to say to you, I'm actually quite angry right now, but it's not you. Uh, even with my husband, I would find that quite hard. I'm not sure I'd manage to get that from my 13-year-old. But so we, we, have, we, have a, we have a halt sign. And what that means is I'm actually overwhelmed right now. And, and you are asking me stuff and you have no idea, but I am freaking out in here. And you just need to stop for a minute and I will come back. So my, my teen can use it. I can also sometimes use it, although I use it less. Um, and, and what that means is she's like, give me a minute, and she'll go away and then come back. And we have to figure out, those of us who are supporting teens, how to talk to them. Because our instinct to, as, as adults is so like, we want to we sit them right down and let's have this out right now, you and me. And it's often the least helpful thing in the moment. Actually, what they need right now is for you just to hold it calmly, just to weather the storm, let them take themselves off. If there's door slamming, it's not great, but it's not the end of the world. And then later, our job is to be the safe space. They can come back. And, and if your teen can come to you and say, um, mom, dad, um, aunt, whoever you are, and say, I handled that really badly, and I'm really sorry, and I don't know why, and I don't know what happened. I just went, I was so mad, or I was so upset. That's an amazing conversation to be able to have. And to be big enough ourselves to be able to do that back, because the reality is sometimes the, the rouse I have with my teenager, never tell her this, but they're as much my fault as hers. Because I had the rubbish day, and I was the one who was carrying a load of frustration. And it was me who, when she walked in, like you say, I'd used all my energy. All she wanted was, was a nice response, and I had nothing left to give, and we had a row. So sometimes my job as the adult there is to say, do you know what, I handled that really badly. And isn't it hard sometimes when you're just exhausted? And, and that's particularly difficult around things that we really care about. So yeah. if you're a parent and your teenager is, if you're a teenager, if you're, if you're particularly frustrated about an area that means the most to your parents, those are often things that are the most difficult for parents to deal with. And one of them is your faith. And, um, you know, Christian parents long for their children to know and love Jesus. And sometimes their determination that you'll know and love Jesus is the very thing that inoculates you against that reality. What we want to know is it's not Jesus, it's your mum or dad. Um, but, but again, what we'd want to say today to parents is don't, don't believe necessarily that your child has left the building faith-wise because they're spending four or five years just deciding that they want to find out for themselves. Uh, this whole process of individuation, of becoming separate, is about them asking big faith questions and walking away to find their own faith. And then finding their own faith is the best gift that they could ever be given in their teenage years because they're finding their own faith in the context of your own household. Whereas if you say you have to adhere to our faith rules in our house, then actually what you're doing is you're leaving them to an open wound at university where they'll find their own faith place there or not. So our encouragement is try not to pressurise again your children to adhere, if you like, or hold the line, but give them the freedom to explore and to find their own way. And I hope, teenagers, that's, that's safe for you to then say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not sure I believe everything that you believe, Mum, but I'm sort of working it out. I'm on a journey and I'm kind of exploring what I think or feel. And just to illustrate that, if you want a bit of inspiration, I suspect some of you will have seen this, but um, you know the film The Greatest Showman, um, which sort of, you know, still been smashing all the box office records. Um, I'm sure some of you will have seen the, the behind-the-scenes practicing and rehearsing um, and, and the, the, the sort of signature theme of This Is Me um, when they're rehearsing. The, um, the actress, Keila Settle, I think her name is, um, starts off behind this music stand and she's really tentative and she's really hesitant and the, and the song is all about this group of misfits who don't quite know who they are and they're on this journey but they feel like they're not as good as other people and they feel like they don't fit in and they're bruised and battered and, and in this rehearsal that you can see on YouTube in the course of this song she gradually steps out from behind the music stand and she 
starts to just grow in confidence as the song builds. And then she absolutely nails this song, which is all about saying, this is who I am. This is me. And, and it's the most amazing picture, actually, of what you've just described, Will, of the teenage journey. For you guys as teenagers, just starting off hesitantly thinking, I don't quite know who I am, what I'm for. I don't know what I'm meant to be doing. You know, there are these teachers' voices and my parents' voices saying this. But your, your teenage years and, you know, even beyond, actually, is that tentative journey. And what we all long for and pray for is, is that confidence that gradually and step by step, as your teenage years build, you'll, you'll stand in front of your peers and the guys at school and the guys in your youth group and in front of your family and, and begin to be able to say, actually, this is who I am. This is who I was made to be. This is me. And uh, it's a real journey. And some of us, I think, actually, in some areas are still definitely on it. But I'd re- watch the clip. It's like four minutes. But it's an amazing picture of, of really what we're all talking about. Let's uh, pray, shall we, as we conclude this session. Jesus, we know that you know who we are. We know who we are because we know whose we are. We are your children. And we want to pray for every single teenager in the room that they would know their identity is found in you, that they would know that they are loved and held, that they know that they're free to explore without fear. And we pray for every parent in the room and every carer of a teenager that you'd give them patience and grace and insight to understand how to support the teenager in their care. We pray for us as a church that we'd be a place of love and compassion and service to our teenagers. And we pray, Lord, would our church be overwhelmed by young people coming to know and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being with us here at the Emotional Health Stream. It's been great. Thank you so much to uh, Steve and to Kate today. If you want to find out more, then do have a look at the website, minorsoulfoundation.org. If you want to find out more particularly about teenage mental health, there's some brilliant talks on there by Kate. Specifically, I'd encourage you to have a listen to. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon, hopefully, in the sunshine. Thanks so much.